Before we get started, we wanted to read a quick disclaimer. First and foremost, this is a true crime slash comedy podcast. We're a couple of guys that like to laugh and crack jokes. We also understand that these topics are grim. We want to bring to life these real-life situations so that you, the listener, can be more aware of your surroundings and hopefully laugh alongside with us. We will not make jokes about the victims or their families impacted by these crimes committed, but we will make jokes about the perpetrator or where we see fit. If you don't believe that we should be making light of these topics or situations or enjoy banter on these topics, then this is not the podcast for you. Howdy and welcome. This is Bloodthirsty Times, a podcast about stuff. My name is Octavio. It's your boy, Will. And I'm Emily. On today's episode, we'll be diving into the world of mid-1980s Los Angeles to talk about a case that went unsolved for 23 years. Until it wasn't. So don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. And join us in these bloodthirsty times. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. Hey, uh, welcome hey. back to the show, everybody. Uh, hey, Will. Yes. What'd you do Friday? Oh, Friday. Um, I worked. I oh, man, home. that's so great. I went oh, to go yeah. see the last podcast on the left live with Emily. And it was no amazing. Way. Yeah, man. Oh, it was so good. So good. So how <sighs> you just had to go to what? NOLA for it? Yeah. Yep. Go to New Orleans at the, where was it? The Orpheum Theater. This really fancy theater, honestly. It's like from like back in the day. So there was like gold inlay and a bunch of stuff. So it was oh, really, this, it was really weird. Like clash of like wonderful, beautiful architecture with last podcast on the left on stage. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, but man, it was so much fun, dude. It just, and it really, you know what it did, dude? It's it, it like had this spark that I already had, but now it's just like solidified that this is what I want to fucking do, man. I want to be not a fraction as good as last podcast on the left. You know what I mean? Yeah, just, just get a piece of it. Just get a piece, just a, a taste uh, of, of what it's like. Well, it's a little piece. Uh. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, just one of those things is just like, uh, tell your friends about us. Help me get to my dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Help me uh, help you. No, no. Help me. Just just help me. And uh, That's all we want. Yeah, that's all we want. Help you know, Octavio. We'll help you too. I'll take you with me. Okay, thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. Man. But yeah, it's just uh, it's just something I want to do is have a live show one day, have enough fans. So you know, tell your friends about us. Get your friends interested if you're interested in us. Make them listen. Force them to listen to their ears bleed. And for eighty-seven <sighs> cents a day, you too can sponsor a wannabe podcaster. Hey, that's me. You can sponsor me. And that's me. You can sponsor me. I'll take 87 cents a day. That 87 shit adds cents up. a day adds up to like a couple dollars eventually. Yeah. yeah, in a week, you'd probably have like $5. Dude, that's so much money to do that. Maybe maybe actually $6. Dang. Yeah, probably $6. Yeah, so you know what? Go out there, tell people about us, and make us just a little bit more well-known. 
No, just a, just a little bit more. Oh yeah, man. Double. I want to just be doubled where we're at now. <laughs> yeah. So you tell a friend, you know, you tell a friend, they tell two friends, and they tell you again about us. I don't know how it works. I spread us like, like you spread COVID. Yes. Not that Topical. fast though. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that much that quickly. You know, let's take this ease into it, but still. It's too many yeah. slices. I think, though, my favorite part of the show had to be, wasn't even having to do with the last podcast. I had three tall cans before the show started. <laughs> like, within half an hour, three tall cans. They were like $11 a pop. Don't worry about it. But anyways, um, I had to pee at some point, but I didn't want to miss the show. So I held it until I just couldn't. And then I looked at Emily <laughs> In the like, face, like, and I said, like an adult? Yeah, like, yeah, like, an, like, an, adult. like an adult, correct, yes. Yeah. I was going to hold it like an adult and not miss any of the show. But um, I looked at Emily in the face, because there's two people next to us, and these are tiny, tiny seats. These are like 1850s people, so they don't have long legs. I did not move. I'm sorry. Yeah, and so I looked at her face like, hey, can you tell the two people sitting next to you that I have to go pee? Because I, <laughs> I can't just walk in front of them. They have to get up out of their seat and go to the hallway for me to pass them and she just looked at me in the face and just started laughing because i didn't no- understand <laughs> like i didn't have to get up to, for you to go by me so i didn't but understand I, why you needed them to but I, I i couldn't think straight because i was going i was almost to the point where i was actively pissing myself so i i couldn't get the words out that i wanted to i just needed you to move <laughs> And I, dude, I, and then I got to the bathroom after everyone did move, and I, there was a line. I was like dancing next to four dudes, who were just staring at me. <laughs> oh man, but it was it was a great fun time. If you haven't seen them live, I highly recommend them live. But um, that's really all I got, man. I just was excited to tell you guys about it. Awesome, it was very exciting yes. to be there. That sounded fun. It was a lot of fun. Tons of fun. <sighs> all right, so with that, you guys ready to jump on in? Let's do it. Richard, All right. please. Richard, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the music for the last podcast show. Richard, if you would, please. Richard. Thank you. Thank Richard. you. Okay, now I can start. <laughs> so uh, let's just jump right into this, huh? Let's get it going. All right. Today's story takes us to Los Angeles County in February of 1986, just six months after the Night Stalker's last confirmed murder. The city was rocked again by a brutal murder, this time in Van Nuys, California. Sherry Ray Rasmussen was born on February 7, 1957. She was raised by her parents, Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, and they raised her to be like a strong, independent woman who ain't need no man. You know what I'm saying? So when she left for college at 16, they were proud as fuck. They, after she graduated from Loma Linda University, she entered the medical field, and it turns out she was a beast when it came to her knowledge and savviness in the medical field. By her late 20s, Sherry had become the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. And she was also an instructor and would teach classes for other nurses. Life was going pretty good, but in August of 1984, it became even better. When she met John Ritten, they both just kind of instantly clicked with each other. Kind of love at first first sight type of thing. It didn't matter to either of them that Sherry was two years older than John. To John, Sherry was a driven, incredibly smart, and beautiful woman. I mean, she was not only determined to change healthcare as a nurse's director, but she was also very proud of her body and was constantly working out to keep in shape. And because of this, she was super athletic. She had an athletic build. 
John was from San Diego, but graduated from UCLA in 1982 as a mechanical engineer and was also pretty fit and athletic. They quickly fell in love um, as their first few months are described as a whirlwind romance. Just kind of super into each other. Um, both were putting 110%. And uh, in April of 1985, they were engaged after just eight months of dating. As an engagement gift, John had given her... Seems a little soon. Hey, man, when you know, you know. <clears throat> also, they didn't even get out of... Yeah, what about the honeymoon phase? A car for an engagement gift. Can we talk about uh, that? He's a mechanical engineer. He's a mechanical engineer. He was a mechanical in the that 80s. He was not short on money or, or jobs. She was a director of nursing. Yeah, but she didn't buy it, I would hope. It's her engagement gift. She don't need no man to either. I'm just so. saying money was not an issue. Do you know what the economy was like in 1980s? Man, I was great. born the year she great. died. It was like the prime time to be alive in your adulthood. Like, man. And a mechanical engineer, like there was no shortness of jobs. He he could have whatever six-figure job he wanted. Uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, the eight months, like that just kind of shows that they, they knew what they wanted. I guess when you know, you know. That's that's what they said. Like, it's just we both are sure about this, so fuck it. Why wait? Yeah, all right. Like, so like I said, uh, bad engagement happen. gift. No, nothing yeah. ever bad. Nothing bad ever happened. So, like I said, he gave her a 1985 silver BMW just to show her how much he adored her. There weren't really that many hiccups, except for Sherry's parents weren't really that crazy about John and didn't really think that they were a great match for each other. Um, but aside from her parents, the only other speed bump in their relationship was when an ex-lover of John's confronted Sherry at her work and told her about her very recent affair with John. When she got home, she asked John about it, and he openly admitted that he had, in fact, cheated on her. But it was just to give the ex closure, he says. And he convinced Sherry that despite having had sex with her, they were just friends. And there was nothing else between them. And they say he's just a friend. Say, <laughs> oh, maybe you. He sounds like a... Yep. Swell guy. Swell. Yeah. Nothing fishy about him. Um, so John said that she, Sherry, was the woman that he wanted to marry. And he could see a bright future with her. A future he never really saw with his ex-girlfriend. Uh, in the end, she forgave him and they moved on, eventually getting married in November of 1985. After the wedding, they decided to move into Sherry's condo in Van Nuys because Sherry loved the layout of the three-story home. And she didn't really think that even if they were to go look for... Because I think he had his own place and she had her own place. And when they got married, they could have just gone out and maybe bought something new. But they didn't really need a home with all kinds of space because they didn't have kids yet. So I think they just were... She was fine with what she had, so... They just kind of like, until we need more space, like as in have kids, we're both happy to live in this condom. It's whatever. What what level of three stories is no space? The, um, I think the it's bottom. Like, the bottom is a garage. Yeah, it's oh. like the garage leading into... Yeah, garage and then stairs leading directly up into your... Uh, yeah, so the second and third floor are like the living space. I think the very top floor is the bedroom, middle floor is like the kitchen and living room, stuff like that. Yeah, sounds about right. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So, on Monday, February 25th, 1986, just 17 days after her 29th birthday, um, this Monday was just a regular day, except for instead of getting dressed to go to work, Sherry decided to stay home on this day because there was a class she was supposed to take or teach, but she thought the class in itself was pretty useless and didn't care for it, so she used a... A recent minor back injury she got at an aerobics class as an excuse to call in to work. Just before 7.30 a.m., she gave John a kiss goodbye uh, since he just started a new job and couldn't stay home with her. She didn't bother to even get out of bed as John left because she knew he locked the front door and set the alarm before he left every morning. So why would today be any different? After John left, she was chilling at home, just laying in bed and taking the time to get some rest in. Around noon, she decided to head down to the kitchen. As she walked from the kitchen to the living room, she was caught completely off guard when she saw someone standing there. The alarm had not gone off and there was no sound indication of a window being opened. Yet here she was face to face with an intruder, which is legitimately my fucking nightmare. Just to walk out of your bedroom or wherever and you're just, someone's just standing in your living room right in front of you. Yeah, you turn the corner into the kitchen and someone's just standing there and you're like, what? <laughs> that, that is my worst fear. It is, I, oh man, like, I'm paranoid as fuck about that all the time. I, I hate the idea of it. So here she is face to face with her intruder. She was instantly gripped with fear and despite her survival instincts telling her to make a run for it and get out of there, she couldn't bring herself to move an inch. Even if she had reacted right away, it's not very likely she would have gotten far as the intruder lunged at her almost immediately. And as they moved closer, Sherry could see them pull out a 38 caliber snub nose revolver and pointing it directly at her. At the sight of the gun, Sherry's instincts finally kicked in and she reacted by going straight at the intruder, which is ballsy in itself. Instead of running away, she's just like, fuck it, let's do this. Come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. So due to Sherry's athleticism, she was able to put up a hell of a fight. She was trying to overpower the other person when suddenly, she heard two loud pops. One bullet went up and the other bullet went down. In the struggle, Sherry didn't immediately feel the bullet pierce her upper body, but she did feel the warmth of the blood that was now running down her body. She knew she had to escape and find help, so she used her strength and broke free, then she bolted towards the stairs so she could get out the front door. But unfortunately, the intruder was hot on her heels and managed to trip Sherry just five steps away from the front door. As she slid across the floor, she left a thick trail of blood behind her. When she turned to look at her attacker that was now standing directly above her, Sherry let out a blood-curdling scream that was actually heard by a housekeeper in a different condo. But that housekeeper was busy minding their fucking business and didn't report it or really think anything of it. Well, yeah. Minding your business business is a double-edged sword. You know, should you get involved in case it is something serious like this or should you mind your business? You know, it's it's a toss up in that situation. It wouldn't have done her or Sherry any harm that to call the police. It's not like she was going over there. It wasn't, you know, taking any time or danger into her day. It's very true. Still, um, I I have a feeling this is a Hispanic, you know, (laughs) housekeeper. Yeah, they don't just from the way she minded her business. It was like, hmm. Yeah, those yeah. are probably gunshots. <laughs> yeah. Is that a scream? Yeah, yeah. not a problem. Not a problem. 
But anyway, somehow Sherry managed to get up and run back upstairs to the living <laughs> The music started right away. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, to the living room where the intruder caught up with her again. And another fight broke out. But this one, this was a legit fight. This is the like the, this is the kind of fight that destroys whole rooms. The kind you see in like action movie flicks, you know, where they just like, like kill Bill. Yeah, you, you just, just destroy the whole kitchen. Destroying the whole kitchen, you know, jumping from couches and hitting the book bookshelves and everything falling down. This it was, was one of those Bay like production. It was this fight, this whole murder scene was a Michael Bay production. Um so during the fight, Sherry was almost winning. And she actually managed to somehow get behind her opponent and get her opponent in a chokehold and was squeezing the ever-loving shit out of her with all the strength she could muster when suddenly she felt a sharp pain in her left forearm. It turns out the intruder had bit Sherry's arm so hard that she could feel teeth hit her bone. Teeth in your bone. Teeth. Yeah, that's a... Oh, can you imagine yeah. the feeling of your teeth grinding against the bone, though? Uh, no. God. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. So the pain was so overwhelming that she let out a loud scream and had to let go. While Sherry was dealing with the pain of that intense bite, the attacker picked up a ceramic vase and hit Sherry directly in the forehead. The hit was so hard it crushed Sherry's skull in. With such a heavy blow, Sherry was knocked unconscious and she hit the ground hard. Now that Sherry was unconscious, the intruder had time to slow down and went to go look for a piece of clothing or something else they could use as a makeshift silencer. They settled on a thick bathrobe and used it to wrap the muzzle of the snub-nosed revolver. They stood over Sherry's body and literally an inch from her body, pointed the gun at her chest and shot her in the heart point blank. Just to make sure Sherry would never be getting back up, they took aim at her heart again and pulled the trigger a second time. Yeah, that's fucking Sounds personal. Just how brutal this attack was sounds super personal. Oh yeah, you know, you could tell by the brutality of something whether someone knew her or not. Yeah, if it's a home invasion gone wrong and <clears throat> you shoot him the first time in the heart, and you're like, okay, now I can get out of here. They're mm-hmm. not a threat to me anymore. No, but to do it a second time, come on now. Plus the smashing of the face in and stuff, and the execution yeah. style. Yeah putting up a fight and whatnot. So later that day, John was on his way home and stopped by to pick up some shit from the dry cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, as you do. Yeah, I wrote that, but I, it was in my head I was supposed to change it to clothes, but I just, it's fine. Nah, just pick up some shit. He, yeah, he picked up some shit from the dry cleaners. And as he got closer to home, he hoped his wife was feeling better. And he was actually hopeful when he pulled up to the house around 6 p.m and noticed that the garage was open and Sherry's BMW was not there. And he thought that meant she felt good enough to go out to the shops or to the grocery store or something, you know, something that got her out of the house. She was fine. As he opened the garage door leading into the house, the first thing he noticed was that two pieces of his stereo equipment from his entertainment center were stacked on top of each other by the door. At first, John was just confused, like, what the fuck is my stereo doing stacked by the door? But then it kind of quickly dawned on him. Yeah, she was. She's getting all this (laughs) stuff ready. Yeah. Um, But then it kind of dawned on him really quick that maybe he was, the fear gripped him that maybe he was in the process of being robbed at this very moment. You know, they were putting stuff by the door so they could run out with it. Or maybe they were, they left and maybe they come back. He didn't know what it was, but he just knew he needed to be careful. 
So he slowly made his way further into the condo, and in the kitchen he saw the first sign that something was seriously horribly wrong. When he spotted a trail of blood leading from the kitchen to the dining room, and when he followed it, he noticed that everything in all the rooms were smashed and knocked over. The end of the trail led him to the living room where he immediately saw the bloodied body of his wife. By the time John saw the body and rushed to her side, rigor mortis was already fully set in. He quickly ran to the phone and called the police. He waited next to his wife for what seemed like hours, probably just a few minutes, but I'm sure it seems like a lifetime standing next to your dead wife, mm-hmm. until the police finally showed up. When the first two officers showed up, they immediately called for backup after seeing the brutality of the crime scene. Pretty soon, the whole street was lined with not only police cruisers, but with emergency personnel as well. <clears throat> yeah, they had uh, even said her body was almost recognizable just because she was covered in so covered much blood. Covered in so much blood. Can't even tell who it was. Uh, so when the coroners arrived, they walked in and pronounced Sherry dead on the spot and estimated that the time of death was earlier in the day, most likely around midday. John had been asked to wait outside, and the police swarmed a three-story condo and went around taking pictures and gathering evidence from the crime scene, you know, the way cops are supposed to do. And they were really thorough, and everyone was fully on board with taking care to not miss anything so that they can get a better idea of who may have done this. And someone with the coroner's office, not with the police, but with the coroner's office, took the time to collect saliva from the bite wound on Sherry's left arm. So just, you know, they were thorough as fuck. They got a ton of evidence and swept the crime scene pretty good. They did a decent job here. (sighs) While waiting outside, John called his father to tell him what had happened. So John's dad immediately got in the car and drove the three hours from San Diego to Van Nuys. John's dad was the only person John called that night, and it's unclear if this was because he thought maybe it was a detective's job to contact the victim's family, or, you know, what other reasons he, a grieving husband, could think to not call the in-laws. But either way, John made zero attempts to let his um, in-laws know about their deceased daughter. No attempt whatsoever. Eight hours after John discovered his wife's body, John's father called Sherry's parents at two in the morning. Now I'm going to let Emily take over from here. She's going to tell us all about the wonderful and thorough investigation done by the 1980s LAPD. I'm sure they did great. Thanks. Hi. Um, The LAPD detectives investigating the case quickly concluded that Sherry had been surprised and killed by a burglar. Sherry's attire, which was a bathrobe, nightgown, and underwear, suggested that she was not expecting visitors. It appeared that the suspect had been in the process of taking electronic equipment when Sherry came upon them, and as a result, jewelry was left behind and the vehicle was taken as a getaway that then was abandoned was recovered a week later. It proved no evidence. Pretty straightforward. And so it was just a, they're right. It was just a burglary gone wrong. Yeah. There's nothing else to it. They left everything. Yeah. A week later, it proved that the after finding the car, there was nothing else found that was taken from the home except the marriage license. That's the only thing that was taken. That is, they just Very took bizarre. the marriage license. That is, what use is that to what use is that to anybody at all? Other other than the couple. Yeah. Even then, it's useless to me. Do you have you ever done anything with our marriage license? Yes, I have. <clears throat> why it was, was useless what the first to you? 
I went what? and did what Sherry did three days prior to her death, and that was open a bank account with her husband, a joint bank account. Mm, that's she the proof the marriage to open. Yeah. Mm. Oh, the or more you know, Octavio. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, well, now you do. Yeah. Nope. No, you're wrong, Will. <laughs> no, I still just in one ear and out the other. Yeah. You have so, so much faith in me. Lead detective Lyle Mayer did consider other possibilities. He quickly ruled out John as a suspect, as John had quit his job and moved away from Los Angeles shortly after the murder. Her parents, Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, told Mayer about Lazarus's harassment, and he said that he made a note of it. This is the first time Lazarus is coming up in the case. And John later told police that he and Nels Rasmussen never discussed Stephanie Lazarus. What? suspicious. Uh, uh, Nah, I just can't. (laughs) There's so much. It's a mystery woman. Yeah, it's just so much. such mystery. What's the word I'm looking for? Negligence? Uh, No, you uh, said they were very thorough. You said they were very thorough. There was so much sarcasm in my voice. It was, it's, yeah. it was almost blinding. Well, I mean, you can't really so investigate thick, anything you, you don't know about yet. Bu- so thick like butter. <laughs> cut it with a knife. Three C's. Okay. Duh. Regardless, the, the police remain focused on the possibility of burglary, especially in light of reported botched burglaries in the area. And one of the two Latino male suspects for those burglaries had been carrying a gun, possibly a 38 caliber like the one that had fired the three bullets into Sherry's body. Super those convenient. bullets... What? Yeah. Just had two Latinos in the area yeah. with a 38 caliber. It was them. Problem solved, boys. We've done it. Hey, we nailed it. We nailed it. I don't it. know that I've ever seen a human Close being running and been able to point out what type of gun they may have been carrying or the color of their skin and what they were wearing and then recount it back to a police officer in any type of stressful situation. Yeah, doesn't sound likely. But it did well, happen, apparently. <laughs> no. <laughs> I missed that day of white training. Yeah, I, I know it like the back of my hand. So <laughs> <clears throat> I keep my neighborhood safe. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah. So the bullets that were pulled from Sherry's body were later identified by experts as federal issued 38 plus P ammo. Only Wait, given to departments. Me, you mean to tell me these were federally issued bullets? Who yes. carries that kind of ammunition? Huh. Federal employees. <laughs> hmm, like like what what would be what would fall under a federal employee? Um LAPD? Lyle Mayor's partner, Steve Hooks. <laughs> All the people investigating this crime. So, cops, that, is what yeah, you're saying? That, where's a uh, police badge? Yeah. Oh, that's so weird that it police is. are federally issued that exact caliber of bullet. Man, and that's... I, I learned the difference. The plus P is specifically required for police officers. For penetration. all federal employees. All right, let's see. Let's see what the detectives conclude with. Lyle Martin. Lyle Mayer's partner, Steve Hooks, found the bite mark unusual as bites during struggles are much commonly inflicted by much more commonly inflicted by women, while the majority of burglars are men. However, because men have been have bitten opponents during fights as well, the burglary theory stood. What? The police work is just so top notch. So so men do men burgle, but women bite. So it could it could couldn't be a woman. Cover cover your bases. Where's the in between? 
Yeah. It seems like a case for it's me. It's all black or white. Yeah. No... <laughs> this is a case for me. Just yeah. when in doubt, bite. <coughs> all right, good. The suspected burglars. No, yeah. The start. Yes. The suspected burglars of the crime remained at large, and despite a follow-up newspaper story eight months later and a monetary reward offered by the Rasmussen family, the LAPD was just too preoccupied with violence resulting from gang wars and the crack epidemic that they were unable to devote any more time or attention to the case. Yeah, that's why they can't. Because yeah. of the crack. <coughs> Gotta get the crack off the streets. That's, there's definitely no other reason they won't investigate this. Mm-mm. Go ahead. Nelson and Loretta's... <laughs> Nels and Loretta said that the Van Nuys detectives were often unhelpful when the family called, hanging up on them or putting them on hold. A year after the murder, the frustrated family reiterated their monetary offer at a press conference and called for more action. Nels even wrote to the then chief police chief of police, Daryl Gates, about the possibility that Lazarus might have been involved. Again, dropping names like bombs and nobody's paying attention. Second time she's been uh, she's been called out directly. Yeah. yeah. To someone of importance, yes, and not just amongst the family. Yeah. Those detectives told him that he watched too much television or that he was crazy every time he called. He continued and was persistent, and he publicized the reward offer and later worked with a short-lived television series, Murder One, on a segment inspired by the case. Yeah, that's, um, we see this a lot with, uh, probably we'll get into some more cases as we go on, where Families have to like harass the cops to get anything moving on their loved one's murder case. Like I remember, uh, Lisk, Lost uh, Girls, Lost Girls was a Long Island serial killer, right? Lost that Girls, one, but Lost Girls, yeah. yeah. That's the that's what it's about, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that show or the real case, like the mother and like the sister had to like call every single day to check up on the status. Otherwise, they would have just fell by the wayside because you know. It, the daughter was just a hooker in, you know, in their, in their minds. Yeah. You know, yeah, bottom, of, bottom of the barrel when it comes to actually wanting to solve it, it wasn't that, a white rich person or a businessman or a politician. It was just the phrase commonly you know, used in like true crime, like us or whatever is uh, the less than dead. So the, the less than like, they're not as important. Yeah. The homeless, the street walkers, or is it just dealers. less dead? I think it's just less dead. They're, the less dead. Yeah, but I was just, just giving examples. Right, no, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out if I said it wrong. <laughs> oh. I think, it's the, I think it's the less dead. But yeah, it's people like um, sex workers, uh, people of color, certain neighborhoods, a certain type of white person, you know, the, what, like the. Um... Crackheads. <laughs> <laughs> the homeless. <laughs> yeah. Crackheads. Homeless, the vagrants and whatnot, people lower class. But yeah, we see this a lot. Like the, they have to. The fact that this family went and got on a TV show—that's fucking dope. Like, good for these parents. Like, they're with it. They are not holding back. Like, good for them. Nels stayed persistent the entire time and stated that he was not convinced that Sherry, who was in good physical shape and had had been the victim of a botched burglary, he insisted that his daughter was in peak physical condition and regularly took workout classes, so it would have been very difficult for her to fall victim. Detective Mayer had told him at one point that the events may have lasted an hour and a half, which is a very long time for burglars, especially considering all items of value were left in the home. That's just insane to me. Yeah. 
Nels was also convinced that whoever shot his daughter did so deliberately because they had fired directly into her chest at close range and taken the trouble to muffle the shot with a quilt, suggesting that the killing was very much deliberate and not the accidental byproduct of a struggle during a burglary. Yeah, sitting there fighting someone off for an hour and a half doesn't make sense at all. And especially, especially like what the story that I told was from blood evidence. Like they retraced the steps from what the blood showed. It wasn't even a confession. Like they pieced what I said, of what happened by the blood evidence. Cause there was blood everywhere. There, there was yeah. clear mayhem throughout the whole condo. So, you know, the also, I think a big clue of to what's going on is the fact that Sherry felt confident enough to, to say, bring it on. You know, she was there. She was there to give as much as she got. Yeah. Why would she confront two burglar men? Like, as fit as you can be, Especially you're not gonna. Ones. Yeah, you know. It's just. <laughs> uh, I said yeah, and I, I didn't even hear what you said. <laughs> I said, especially brown ones. Uh, no, no. I heard afterwards after I agreed with you, but uh, no, but it's just like, why, why would a, even a physically fit woman do that to herself? Like, why would she not just try to sub be subdued and give in to them to not cause them to be angry instead of going like a ram head to head? Yeah. So that doesn't make sense. I don't think anybody she was about that life. She was. But still, and, if it even was then, and even then, like, if they're saying it took an hour and a half, why would someone realize, hey, this is more d- difficult than it needs to be and just leave? Yeah, absolutely. And not even take the two stereos that you took the time to stack. Yeah. Just leave. After you've, you've already completely fucked up this burglary case. You're just yeah. going to leave shit there? Yeah. So anyways. Yeah, it's crazy. So Detective Lyle Mayer eventually retired, thankfully, because I don't think the case would have ever been solved had he stayed on it. He handed it off to a new detective, and the new detective assigned to the case had already been getting phone calls from Nels, and he was told that he was unable to follow up on any of Mayer's notes and did not think that any new leads would happen. Why was he not able to keep up with Mayer's notes? What happened to him? Um, They stopped. Oh, good. They weren't consistent <coughs> nor done, actually. Okay. Yeah, sounds about right. So, surprise, surprise. Papa Nels was persistent yet again in 1993 when he offered to pay the Van Nuys PD to do a DNA test on the evidence from the murder. Now, with the technology available, he was told that the police needed a suspect in order to actually proceed with the testing. He's offering to pay to have them do the DNA test, and they're still not wanting to do it. This is 1993? Yes. Oh, you know what? We, we Did you not include it when um, John went to ask about... Oh, I did. Oh, okay, we'll get to it then. Sorry. So Nels is busting his ass to find his daughter's killer, while John and Stephanie Lazarus, Lazarus briefly reunite in 1989. Mayor's notes show that John had called him and asked him if he was absolutely sure there was no evidence linking Lazarus to his late wife's death just to be extra sure before he continued his relationship with her for a few more years. Yeah. He called the police department and said, Hey, any, uh, you guys have any more you know, insight on if Lazarus was involved? And like, no, she's not involved. Okay, cool. Thanks. I'm going to cool. go hey. fuck. Go yeah. Fuck, go uh, your out again. Yeah. Go fuck Stephanie Lazarus from 89 to 92 and then completely deny any of that happened. You know, I'll be busy. 
In the meantime, Stephanie Lazarus continued working with the LAPD. She went on to start her own private investigation firm, Unique Investigations. In 1987, she earned medals, including one gold at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. In 1993, after stints in the department's Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program and the Internal Affairs Division, she became a detective. Three years later, she married a fellow officer and adopted a daughter with him. Moving back to Simi Valley at work, she became an instructor at the police academy and eventually, John eventually remarried as well, and he also did not continue to pressure the police as his former father-in-law had. Yeah, exactly. Well, they did what they did. Uh, they did what they could, and I guess they'll never figure out who did it. Yeah, I trust the 1980s LAPD. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I trust them all the time. Not 80s, just all the time. <laughs> so in the late 1990s, after DNA testing had become more prominent, the LAPD formed a new unit that looked through the forensic evidence collected from department's cold case files to determine whether any of the potential, any had potential for new leads through DNA testing. Among the evidence seen as likely to do was that some of the collected evidence from the Rasmussen residence. The evidence was actually missing from the file, though, that contained the actual DNA of the suspect and had been checked out of the file in 1993 by an unnamed detective who didn't mention it at the time. Yeah, the 90s and stuff like that before checks, whatever, like you could literally as a cop go and say, hey, I need this evidence and not even show photo ID. You didn't at this time you could give them a name, whatever you want. Like I'm Jackie Daytona and go in and, uh, any of those, uh, eight kilos of Coke you got back there. (laughs) They're evidence. They're definitely evidence. I don't want them for myself. And you know, that's not your real name. Jackie Daytona. Yes. What's I love it. What's the problem? I love it. The problem here. Jackie it's, Daytona needs eight kilograms of Coke. Okay. I'm I'm for it. He's just a regular human bartender. All right. I am all about it. He needs so, to make that dough. Yeah. It's just it was crazy how at this time the police system was just like, oh, you're a cop? Good enough. Like <laughs> you just have to oh, have yeah. a badge and a suit and a, you know the blue on. And yeah, cool. Yeah, go for it. Do whatever you want back there. It's all you. Don't even have to check it out or show me proof of who you are. Go for it, dude. <laughs> So Jennifer Francis, who was part of this new team that was doing the DNA testing, did not find any matches in the combined DNA database, but did find that the saliva in it had come from a female, undermining the initial detective's burglary theory once again. Once again. Yeah, it's not like there was any family members yelling at their face for, what, 93, seven years now seven years yeah seven years hey it's probably a woman let alone this specific woman stephanie lazarus you know no this is the first they're hearing of this and as if this couldn't get any easier for them to find someone several years later jennifer francis claimed that she usually does not have access to the files after the fact but actually had access to not just the sample and its report but the entire case file for sherry rasmussen which had been given to her to help decide what other samples they needed to analyze. And upon discovering that the female was a biter, she retrieved it and came across a report of a quote-unquote third-party female who had allegedly harassed the victim at her job and residence before the murder. Francis asked the detective supervising her if this woman had been investigated, to which he supposedly responded with, oh, you mean the LAPD detective? 
He elaborated that the woman, a former girlfriend of the victim's husband, was in fact a current LAPD detective and she's quote unquote not part of this. He insisted that the case was a simple, simple burglary and the department had long, as the department had long concluded, no other detective would pursue the case and the evidence went back into the files. So, so, so they did nothing. They did nothing. Oh, Will, you want to tell us why they did nothing? <laughs> yeah, let's take, a, let's take a little dive into the 80s and 90s um, culture in uh, the LAPD, and more specifically, a certain uh, division of the LAPD. Okay. But <clears throat> this type of corruption and cover-ups are nothing really new to LAPD or other major law enforcement agencies across America. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's heard of Thin Blue Line, started yeah. in uh, NYPD. That was their. Uh... Did that come from directly from nine eleven? Really? Uh, I don't know. If it came from nine eleven. It no, might it... have been, but I don't know. I feel like, I feel like that's something history. that the kind of propaganda that would come out of nine eleven. You know, with the reuniting of the peoples across the U.S. and you know these people did were heroes that day. I mean, don't get me wrong. Full respect for them, but you know, I feel like that sentiment of they were heroes on that day. Now they're heroes forever. To me, yeah. the thin blue line means like they can do no wrong, no matter what the choices they do or who they shoot. I'm behind you, brother. So to me, I'm not well, a fan. Yeah. Well, that then came about the blue wall, which is LAPD's. Thin <laughs> it's blue not line. even a line. It's no, not even it's a, a wall, bro. A big. It's not a thin blue line. It's a big blue wall. Yeah, that's a big ass fucking blue wall. And basically, it means if you're a good cop, you don't rat on the bad ones. That's it just that's that's the, their code of honor, and this has been seen time and time again with the likes of the Rampart scandal, which I'll go into, that had been making headlines since the late 1980s and into the 2000s. Um, now, around the same time of the Rasmussen case, um, there were two officers who were on trial for murder. Murder. You don't murder. Say. Yeah. <laughs> It was two officers, Richard Ford and Robert Van Vias. They'd make national headlines as the killer cops. Now, they didn't start as killer cops. They started as robbers. Robbing the Schaefer and Sons jewelry store in Northridge in November of 1982, Ford would enter the store with a wig and a fake beard to avoid being identified later. This is like narc mm-hmm. cop uh, stuff where they put on disguises so they don't get recognized. As cops, that's exactly what they did. And would enter the store um, with the full costume on. And what stood out to investigators following the reports of the robbery when they talked to the victims um, was the verbiage that the robber used. Hands behind your back, palms together. And a classmate of Ford's would later testify saying that during their academy, when learning proper handcuffing techniques, they would use the command, hands behind your back, palms together. Huh. So that's part one. Sounds completely yeah. normal. Yeah. And all this was found out like relatively around the same time. Like this isn't like three separate cases. They they did uh, a robbery, attempted murder. That was one trial. And then they got tried another for actual murder, which we'll get into. Okay. So they were hired to murder an exotic dancer. Joan Loguericio. Loguericio. I'm just going to use Joan going forward, by the way. Good deal. Don't say. Yeah, yeah. 
but they were hired to murder for her $100,000 life insurance policy. But it wasn't that cut and dry. These cops were fucking seedy. So basically, Von Vias became friends with Joan and would buy her house for her while she continued to live there. Now, this allowed Von Vias to obtain a loan on the house, and an arrangement was made for Von Vias to acquire a life insurance policy on both of them for a total of $100,000. Ooh, it's a lot of moolah. Yeah. Now, this is where Ford steps into the picture. He knew where she worked. She was an exotic dancer. And tipped her $320 for a 20-minute lap dance. And in return... Yeah. That's good looking. And Uh, granted, that would not be a lot of money if you went to a highfalutin strip club. This was not. 20 minutes? $320 for 20 minutes? Uh, You should have seen the Vegas prices, bro. (laughs) It was Mm. expensive. This is the 80s, though. Yeah, so you got to account for that too. Three hundred twenty dollars and eighty-two. Okay, yes, it was a lot of money, but you just this was a CD. This was this was like a, a so it's not something you would expect in this place yeah. specifically. In, yes, this was kind of okay. a dive. Understood. Yeah. Understood. And so, in return, she gave him her number. Ford, who was posing as a man named Doctor Anderson, said he would pay her a hundred thousand dollars to be with her. Joan Wait, being a bit or just a thousand. A thousand. I, I added for inflation. $1,000. That, that makes gotcha. sense. I'm with it. Gotcha. <laughs> and Joan, being a bit apprehensive and remembering that her friend Von Vias was a cop, asked him to check into this Dr. Anderson. Von Vias told her that he worked for a pharma company and that she would definitely take up the offer. He had money. Ford called Wait, her up. Huh? This, doc- yes? this Dr. Anderson is the other cop, right? Yes. So his partner is answering the phone saying, yeah, you should probably pay that guy. No, so Von. She doesn't know Von Vias and Ford know each other. That's what I'm saying. So this is she kind knows, of a setup. She knows. So Von Vias knew that she knew Von Vias, and so he sent the guy that she doesn't know to impersonate this other guy. Yeah. So when she called Von Vias, he was like, "Yes, I can confirm this is that guy." Yeah. That yeah. was a scam. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. But she yeah. wasn't paying them. You said she was paying them now. Oh. Okay. Either way, He's I get it. Her. Ford is going to pay her $1,000. This was the scheme yeah. to get her. You know, you, you understand why. Okay, I got you. So then Ford called her up once again and now stated that if she met up with him, he would pay off any of her bills and could write her a check for $20,000 on the spot. Now, after coming over, getting pretty fucked up with drugs and alcohol, performing several sexual acts, she was told to lie on her back, with her hands underneath her, sorry, lie on her stomach with her hands underneath <laughs> her, and Ford proceeded to straddle her back. As she looked back at him, she saw that his hand came down with something dark in his hand. She remembers hearing elastic like snapping before she jumped out from underneath him, left the money, and told him she was ill. Wow. Now she Yeah, she ba- she she bailed. She saw something sketchy. He was trying to put something over her head and she bailed. Oh, okay, gotcha. Now, she didn't report this incident to police, but would inform her friend Von Vias and apparently his business partner at the time, Mr. Adams, of the interaction with Dr. Anderson and her fear that he was trying to kill her. Again, Von Vias immediately squashed that notion, asked if she would see him again. Obviously, she said no. Right. Uh, Von Vias would would continue to harass Joan and call her rather frequently, inquiring about her live-in boyfriend and her work schedule, which started to concern Joan to the point where she asked Von Vias 
to cancel the life insurance policy. But Von Vias conveniently forgot the name of the agent. Hmm. Now, Joan would later meet up with Mr. Adams, who she had known prior when Von Vias introduced them so she could get a job at their auto repair shop. It was like her side gig. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> she told Mr. Adams that she believed Von Vios was trying to kill her for her insurance proceeds. Again, Mr. Adams being uh, privy with the scandal, said everything was fine, not to worry about it. Now, how did Mr. Adams enter the picture? He had first met Ford at the VA where they both received treatment for PTSD for their tours in Vietnam. They quickly became friends and eventually Ford introduced them to Von Vias and together they decided to open an auto repair shop and they would make Mr. Adams the manager. Following the, uh, the events following were the, the robberies and Mr. Adams started to become aware of their involvement in the jewelry store robbery and they threatened to kill him if he went to the police. Now, this happened a couple times where they kept threatening his life if he goes to authorities and he finally kind of was like, hey, I need to get out of this situation. So he finally went to the authorities, but knowing that both Ford and Von Vias worked for the LAPD, he contacted the FBI, who then referred him to the ATF. The agent met with both Mr. Adams and Joan and decided that after hearing their story, her life was indeed in danger and affixed a bug to Mr. Adams. Now, following his meeting with the agent, he returned to the auto repair shop and confronted Von Vias about his intent on killing Joan for her $100,000 inflation numbers, (laughs) $100,000 life insurance policy, and that Ford was posing as Dr. Anderson. He's like, I know what you guys are doing. Von Vias got nervous, denied the allegations, and at which point Ford arrived and he was met with Mr. Adams questioning him about his Dr. Anderson identity. Ford and Von Vias left the shop. Obviously, they're like, oh, shit, what do we do? This guy knows us. He's, he's on to us. Mm-hmm. But would return five minutes later where Von Vias would ask Mr. Adams if he wanted to make the hit. He's like, do you want in on this? You know mm-hmm. how much money is at stake. We're going to bring you in with us. Now, yeah, Mr. Adams, yeah, Mr. Adams only agreed because he knew he was bugged and wanted to elicit more information from the two. And Von Villa stated that Joan was already afraid of him and Ford, so Mr. Adams would have to help with the hit. Ford would actually do the killing, but uh, Mr. Adams would accompany him. And in turn, they would both receive $12,500 apiece. Excuse me? Yeah, $12,500 to kill someone. Cool. Mr. Adams didn't have to do shit. He was just a, the bait. Got it. So then Mr. Adams uh, called Joan, arranged for a midnight meeting, which she obliged. Von Vias told Adams that it had to look like a sex crime. It needed to take place in Hollywood, so it would just look like a run-of-the-mill prostitution murder. They planned out the night on how they would move the body and where they would leave it. On 3 p.m. that day, Adams met with the ATF agent, and they monitored phone calls to both Von Vias and Ford, confirming where they were going to actually drop off the body and roughly the time that they were going to um, kill her. Around 11.45, the van parked in front of Venus Fair, um, the strip club where Joan worked. Um, they did a, a brief um, drive around the area, the intersection. So where they were going to drop the body was one major cross street north of where Venus Fair was. Um, one was on Victory and the other was on Vesper, if you know the Van Nuys yeah. area. 
so they drove around to like a little dumpster area and like this will work and then proceeded to drive back to the Venus fair. Um, Adams got out of the van and started to walk towards the establishment to meet up with Joan. And that's when LAPD swarmed in and arrested Ford, who was hiding underneath a blanket in the back of the van. Von Vias was then subsequently arrested at his home around 2 a.m. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, they actually killed someone. A businessman named Thomas Weed. Now, Ford and Von Vias were hired by his estranged wife, Janie Olgavy, to kill her. Uh, then a strange husband as well, um, because they were going through a bitter divorce and it would put an end to the proceedings. Nice. It's one way to do it. Yeah, it is one way to do it. So these were some bad cops. And this was big. Yeah, and this was big for the LAPD. Like, who would have thought that the ones who were sworn to protect could be capable of such atrocities? But the LAPD said, hold my beer. Let's see what the Rampart Division can do. Now, if you don't know about the Rampart scandal, where the fuck have you been? But I'm not name shaming anyone, news shaming anyone, but it's been all over the place. And the Rampart scandal involved a special division of the LAPD called Crash, or the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. The fuck? Yeah. Basically, the rise in gang crime, it rose to a point where they needed to create a special division to combat it. And so Crash was born. Basically, a gang unit that was supposed to eradicate gangs became a gang themselves. <laughs> well, how else are you going to do it? It takes a yeah. gang to kill a gang. got to yeah. fight fire with fire. Yeah, I guess. <clears throat> now, we'll get into the, uh, the little timeline here of when things started to unravel. The first such incident involved crash officer Kevin Gaines, who was shot and killed by an LAPD undercover officer following a road raid inch road rage incident on March 18, 1997. Liga stated that Gaines approached him, brandished the firearm, and Liga shot him in self-defense. Now, it was later found that this was not Gaines' first incident brandishing a firearm at other motorists while off-duty. He he shot Gaines because he was just plain clothes, and he was brandishing mm-hmm. a freaking firearm at him. Yeah. So he killed him. But there had been numerous other records of that happening. Why he was still an officer? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Well, you, you know, there's that big blue wall. Nothing a police officer does is wrong as long as no other police officer tells on him, right? Yeah. You're on to something here. <laughs> the investigation also revealed that Gaines was associated with Death Row Records and owner Suge Knight. No. What? No. Yeah, no dude. No way. <laughs> Alright, yeah, go on. Yeah. I gotta hear it. Shoot. Go on. All right. So Death Row Records had associations with the Bloods. And they would hire off-duty LAPD officers to serve as security guards. Okay. But no good deed goes unpunished as the family of corrupt officer Gaines hired famed attorney Johnny Cochran. You don't say. There's more <laughs> famous names. Yeah. And then sued the city for $25 million for wrongful death. And surprise, surprise, the LAPD settled and awarded them $250,000. Next up is Crash Officer David Mack and his role in the Bank of America robbery. On November 6, 1997, robbers made off with $722,000 from an LA branch of Bank of America. Investigators immediately became suspicious 
because the assistant bank manager at the time had more cash delivered than was necessary before the robberies took place. So every morning they get your uh, randomized times, right? When they get their, sure. their money deliveries, but she ordered a little bit extra this time. And it just so happened the store got robbed that day or the, the mm. bank. Convenient. Yeah. And uh, so they started questioning her and she immediately folded. She just folded immediately. Yeah, she folded and said, uh, like, on, no, here. yeah, no, my boyfriend, he's a LAPD cop. You know him, Officer Mack. Uh, he you was a master. Him. Yeah, he was a mastermind. He was subsequently arrested, sentenced to 14 years and three months in the Fed Hotel. While he was there, he associated himself with the mob Piru Bloods. Piru. Piru. Thank you for, well, you've been in the pen or what? <laughs> no, I just lived in Los Angeles before. Yeah, okay. He's and been in the you, pen too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he probably could have guessed that they have ties to death row records. Yeah, they definitely do. The Pyrus. They're actually, there's whole documentaries about them. Now we arrive at the code cracker and in the crash gang. Officer Rafael Perez. Now he was nabbed after checking out six pounds of cocaine, which was evidence that was collected previously by Detective Liga. You know, the one that killed one of their own? Yep. Yep. So they believe that Perez made the cocaine go missing in retaliation for the killing of Gaines. Perez was arrested, put on trial, where the jury came back deadlocked. Now, investigators were intent on retrial and would end up finding 11 more instances of suspicious cocaine transfers and found that Perez was switching out the cocaine for Bisquick. <laughs> Good on you. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And so Perez immediately began spilling the beans for a plea deal. Is, is there like, anyone that doesn't fold immediately? <laughs> no, they eventually all do. He would give up a couple bad shootings, quote unquote, bad shootings. Yeah, and yeah. finger three other crash officers involved in illegal activity. <laughs> finger. Yeah, they'd f he's going to finger three others. For some bad activity. Mm -hmm. Now, in return, he would only receive a five-year sentence with immunity from further charges, excluding murder. Fuck. Right. Yeah. So you give up all the bad cops, you're only going to get five years. That's ridiculous. Good to know. And oh, uh, a lifelong witness protection program. Even better. You are not safe from any... Well, I mean, it's you kind of have to. If you I mean, rat on it's cops. well deserved at that point. They should get their little whatever. Stupid. Yeah, but now he has all the cops wanting to kill him. So, um, one wow. of these so called bad shootings involved Perez and his partner Nino Durden, who shot, framed, and testified against Javier Ovando, an unarmed gang member who was left paralyzed following the shootings. Ovando had been serving time for the alleged assault against the officers where he was sentenced to 23 years in jail. Jesus. Perez would go on to implicate 70 other officers involved in misconduct over a nine-month confessional period. Jesus. Holy shit. Yeah. That's and, crazy. And, and the, you know, the, the saying is a few bad apples, right? Mm -hmm. There's just a few bad apples. That's always what people say. It's not the whole... It's not the whole precinct or it's not, it's not cops in general. It's just a few bad apples. Well, the whole fucking saying is a few bad apples spoils the bunch. So 
God, this, well, this makes me so fucking mad, all of this. Well, I mean, so even during that whole confessional period, uh, Prez provided a detailed portrait of the culture inside of this elite crash unit. Prez insisted that 90% of crash officers were, quote-unquote, in the loop. Oh, my God. Knowingly framing civilians and perjuring themselves on the witness stand. Uh, and it's a cop's and word against yours? Fucking disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, Prez claims his superiors were aware and encouraged crash officers to engage in this misconduct because their only goal was to arrest gang members by any means necessary, legal okay. or illegal. Prez also claimed that crash officers were awarded plaques for shooting civilians and suspects with extra honors fuck? if such persons were killed. Prez alleged that crash officers carried spare guns in their war bags, uh, the bags that they put in their passenger seat, their like go bags, yeah, yeah. to plant on civilians and suspects in order to avoid responsibility for their alleged crime. Oh <sighs> my God. Yeah, so crash officers would get together at a bar near Dodger Stadium in Echo Park to drink and celebrate shootings. Supervisors handed out plaques to shooters containing red or black playing cards. A red card indicating that you wounded a suspect or a black card indicated that you killed him. Prez testified that at least one Rampart lieutenant attended these celebrations. And even a, lo a lot of the crash officers were proud of being part of crash and they had their uh, logo tattooed on him. It was a skull with a cowboy hat encircled with poker cards depicting the dead man's hands, aces and eights. Uh, How cute. Imagine, imagine having that as your logo. Don't get me wrong. That sounds cool as shit, but the meaning behind it is just fucking ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It's disgusting. Now they all look fucking stupid. Yeah. And they're easier so following, to pick out. Yeah, I'm, I mean, a, a lot of them got got jacked. <laughs> you know what's you know what's funny is um, when I, we first came up with the idea for this podcast, my initial plan was to only do cases that highlighted police misconduct, and literally I wanted to name the podcast like "Man, fuck the police." <laughs> <laughs> Just because I want to like highlight these kinds of bullshits, dude. This makes me so fucking mad. This is this is a trigger for me as the newer as, generation is saying. And a brown as a brown man as well. Yeah, it's just uh, it's disgusting, dude. I cannot fucking stand it. And the the cop suckers are just as bad, dude. It's uh, yeah. The who? There has to be a there's be, there's be a, people that. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. you were saying something else. I think they call them bootlickers now. Badge bunnies. Like, if you can't, you know, distinguish between a good cop and a bad cop and be able to condemn them. And because a lot, like, I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of the portion of people who are like blue lined or whatever are like all blue in. Lives, blue lives matter. Yeah, are all in. Like, the cops are right. You're wrong. Like, as simple as that. And I don't agree with that at all. It's not black and white. No, there are many instances of. Um, police brutality or um, unlawful, like a bad shoot. You're yeah. like, and come on, man. Like, I don't know. I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but like the whole Black Lives Matter movement, if they would switch from saying um, specifically, I know that it's specifically colored people who are getting the brunt end of it, but if they would just switch to fuck police brutality in general, I think they'd get a better response from people. 
Because if you if someone says fuck police brutality and you're not saying yeah fuck police brutality, there's something wrong with you as a human. Yeah. But but when you say um, fuck police brutality against colored specifically, it's just you kind of in a way opposite leaving people out. You know what I mean? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like you kind of yeah. can't have white people in black lives matter, even though they want to. It just they turn tend to be the the violent ones that are in there for. Yeah, so I reasons. think I think if people uh, just kind of in general change it to fuck police brutality and try to get rid of police brutality in general, I think they'd have a better overall response. Like I said, you can't someone can say fuck police brutality. And if your response isn't yes, you're right. You're a fucking psycho. Like it's as simple as that. Anyways, yeah. sorry. I'm just thinking they went with a less controversial hashtag that maybe children could also spread awareness of. So the fuck part probably wouldn't go I over well you, with the you gotta call a spade you gotta call a spade a spade i think no it's just hashtag ftp <laughs> oh fuck that pussy oh shit. no it's that? <laughs> that yeah, i don't before. know what you were thinking i let's, was thinking let's... fuck that puto yeah you're thinking fuck the police so like i, <laughs> I don't know yeah Oops. anyways yeah let's, anyways let's, yeah finish this part. so so following Perez's confessions, the DA's office overturned um, about 100 convictions based on wrongful arrests, one nice. of them being uh, Ovando, mm -hmm. who served two and a half years before he was finally released. Uh, he would go on to sue the city and was awarded $15 million in the police misconduct settlement. Holy fuck. The city would eventually lose close to $125 million when everything Ooh. was said and done. God. That's... How did they afford that? Um, budgeting and I don't know. Was budgeting. Crash shut down? Hold on. Yes, we'll get into it. Okay. I want to focus on Ovando. I was like, okay. oh, dude, this guy got out. Yeah. Yeah. Four months later, after receiving his cool 15 mil, yep. he was arrested in Nevada for possession and trafficking drugs. Fucking like for real? Like yeah, legitimately? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was uh -huh. actually doing it. It wasn't just they were, you know, they were going to get this guy no matter what type of thing. Like they're going to plant some. No, on him. they just they they shot him when they didn't need to shoot him, but <gasps> he was still a gang member. He was just an unarmed gang member. Oh, he was plus he got that fifteen mil from the cops, so they're probably pissed off. So what I'm asking is, did this actually did the drug possession and trafficking actually happen, or did they just say no, it no. happened? No, because this was in Nevada. This was okay. this is all different precinct. Okay. Yeah, this is. So he's just state. a fucking idiot. This is the state of Nevada. He's just a fucking idiot. Yes. Oh, uh, God. Everyone sucks. Mm -hmm. So Crash was finally disbanded on March 3rd of 2000 by LAPD Chief Bernard Parks. And then soon thereafter, the feds would take over the LAPD uh, September of 2000 to monitor reforms within the LAPD for a period of five years. And that was their... Uh, response to the rampart yeah but that wow. just goes to show what was going on behind the scenes in the um rasmussen investigation like i oh, yeah, feel yeah. like at this point they they were told three times about stephanie lazarus right i think they're like yeah like they're like oh she's fine but in their head like yeah she totally fucking did it but i'm never gonna tell you that yeah so yeah, she's Emily, part of the let's let's finish this off with uh hopefully a good ending so, as he stated, the LAPD was taken over by the F FBI um, for a period of five years. They only stuck around for a bit. 
So about 2009, crime in Los Angeles had declined enough from its earlier levels that detectives began looking into cold cases to increase their clearance rates. In Van Nuys, two detectives, Jim Nuttall and Pete Barba. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I'm mature. I I promise I'm a mature adult. Go ahead. Uh, Dr. Nuttall? I'm not. I lied. I lied. I'm not a mature adult. I can't. <laughs> yeah. They reviewed the Sherry Rasmussen file and found it interesting enough to be worth pursuing. Because the DNA test pointed to a female suspect, they decided the burglary theory was invalid and they would have to start from the beginning. If they only knew at that moment. Good. Well, I'm glad that they're taking this seriously now. I assume, you know, what's the saying? Better, better late than better never. Late than never. That's, that's it. Thank you. Better late than never. So Nuttall and Barba, <laughs> I'm going to say the detectives from here on out. Okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> they looked at the, at the case as a murder from the start. With the burglary staged to throw the police off the trail, many aspects of the crime were not consistent for a break-in, especially one committed in daylight. Sherry's jewelry box was in plain sight on her dresser and had not even been touched. The condo was in the middle of a gated complex surrounded by other units for which burglars would have expected to be easily observed. The front door had an alarm warning and had not been forced open, as it might have been if the burglars had not expected anyone to be at home inside the condo. Oh, at home. Inside the condo, a key aspect of the crime scene was also inconsistent with the burglary theory that was a stack of the stereo equipment and a VCR. If, as the evidence suggested, the struggle between Sherry and her attacker had begun upstairs, then continued downstairs, the stack would have likely been knocked downstairs and scattered around. So it made more sense to assume that it had been stacked afterwards when an actual burglar would have fled the scene immediately after the shooting. Yeah, it's not. For something to go that wrong, uh, someone in the process of burgling someone is just going to leave. Like, this is way too much. It's not worth it at this point. Way too much is gone. And I fucking killed someone. I'm fucking gone. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they were saying the alarm had never been set, right? That's yes. What they said. Mm-hmm. Yes. Huh. But at that point of reading into the file, they don't see no, that. No, dude. I, I hear you, Will. I hear you. It's just I don't know, man. Yeah, because there was no fourth century, so they're like, well, they either had a key or they picked the lock, and the alarm never went off, so someone didn't set the alarm that day, or possibly even lock the door if you think about it, or the person knew the code. Think about that. Yeah. I think that it wasn't locked. It just never set? Yeah. Why don't I think think she would have heard that? Wouldn't you hear if you like, you kind of know when your your significant other is leaving, you would hear them lock the door, right? Yes. I I always notice that. The bedroom's on the third floor, the front door's on the first floor. No, yeah. Yeah, but it's a completely quiet house. It would be on the second. I don't think they yeah. exit. I think they have a uh, entryway on the second floor, and their garage is on the the third. Possibly, I don't know quite. The I don't know. I kind of looked at it. I looked at Street View and and mm-hmm. saw it, but I didn't know where. I couldn't see any front doors because it was a gated community. Yeah. What? Which is also interesting. Detail. Yeah. So, the forensics reinforced this theory. On a record player from the stack was a thumb-shaped blood stain. It had no print, suggesting that whoever left. It was wearing gloves to avoid leaving identification, but the blood was Rasmussen's, suggesting that the equipment had been stacked after the struggle and shooting. It had been left behind, the detectives realized, to make the crime look like something other than what it really was. Dun, dun, dun. Clearly planted evidence type of thing. Yes. 
So from then, they went to the vault and found four large bound volumes of case files called the murder files. So clever. Yeah. They ran out of names, okay? The murder files. The FBI's been on their ass. Get off their truck. You get off their ass. The (laughs) FBI's. They developed a list of five female suspects. Not all. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, Detective Jim was taken aback when John told him. What did did Jim do? (laughs) What did Jim do, though? Not all. Not all. He told John over the phone, or he was taken aback when John told him over the phone that Lazarus was a police officer. By then, Lazarus had been promoted to a higher level detective and was working at the art theft division and working on cases as part of a commercial. No, she was working on art theft cases as part of the commercial crimes division. That seems pretty prestigious. How boring. Yeah, um, I need to get off these mean streets, so I'm going to start looking into art thefts. It's well, 20, 23 years after the murder, that's... Uh, that's that's like 50. a that's like your retirement position. She's probably around 50, so it's, it's got to be I just can't easier. imagine living 23 years of my life, always having that on the back of my mind. Like, never being comfortable, 100%. That image of the brutal murder has to flash in her head, unless she's really that callous and psychopathic that she just doesn't care. And she just was able to live her life. I don't know. I, I would imagine that the the vision of you actively, brutally murdering someone would flash across your memories every nope. two seconds. Not Miss Stephanie Lazarus. So as one of two, of the two detectives in the nation's only full-time unit devoted to that specialty, Lazarus had gained some local media attention when she and her partner had recovered a statue stolen from Carthay Circle. To better understand the field, she told the local newspaper she had begun learning to paint. Off the job, Lazarus had been active in the Los Angeles Women's Police Officers Association and organized childcare for families of officers. She also made chocolate-covered cherries and homemade soap for her neighbors in Simi Valley for Christmas. She was obviously the sweetest woman on earth. She, I feel like it's, again, I've said this a couple times in the past couple episodes, but the lady death protests too much. She's doing too much good, I feel like. She, what is she making up for? You know what I mean? That's what it feels like. Dang, I, shots fired. Like, I hear you, bro. <laughs> Calling me out. <laughs> oh, you? <laughs> what are you making up for? Yeah, what are you hiding? You'll never know. True. Since Lazarus was still with the department, Jim and Pete realized... Well, what did you do? <laughs> They realized that they would have to proceed carefully. Still, they ranked Lazarus as the least promising of the five suspects since they read in the files that she and John had ended any relationship they had over the summer before the murder took place. Jim and Barbara's investigation soon eliminated all but one other woman. The other woman, a former co-worker of Sherry's who had some disputes with her, was eliminated by a covertly collected DNA sample. So these fellas are out there. They're grinding. They're trying to do their job and give this case its true, proper due diligence. They're doing a good job. Yes. With only Lazarus left, they kept their inner investigation a closely guarded secret. Not only did her husband also work in commercial crimes division as a detective, as a detective, she may have had other friends who could have tipped her off. If she were the killer, she could have 
improved her defense and if she were not then they could have unintentionally smeared a fellow officer who had an unblemished service record over the course of her career with no disciplinary investigations or civilian complaints that is kind of crazy that she's never had any issues yeah, yeah didn't they have to like once they well i don't think we're we're there yet never mind we're good go on sorry they referred to her only as number five. They worked on the case after hours behind closed doors and developed cover stories to explain why they wanted to look at personnel records for one particular officer from 20 years ago. That's sketch. Like one. Yeah. I pulled tons. But anyways. Yeah. The detectives began looking into other aspects of Lazarus's life during the mid-1980s. Another detective recalled that at that time, most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 caliber as their backup or off-duty carry gun. In fact, they were required to purchase only weapons compatible with the federal plus P ammunition that had been used in the murder. State and departmental records showed that Lazarus had indeed owned a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber at the time and reported it stolen to Santa Monica police, but not her own department's armor. 13 days after the murder. What? Yep. Okay, so in my job, if I lose a tool... I have to fill out a form and give it to my foreman. Yet this officer is able to go to a whole different precinct and a whole different county to say that her gun was stolen and she's a police officer. Like I would have been like, if I were a Santa Monica cop, like, okay, go tell your boss. Like, what do you want me to do about it? Well, her only saving grace was that she tried to say that it was stolen while her car was parked near Santa Monica Pier. So oh, they, okay. But as these detectives were investigating they just figured that she had thrown the ocean or the gun into the ocean and without mm -hmm. the weapon dna would be the only definite way to connect the crime to lazarus yeah and then would you say that stuff was all missing already right in the case file yes there was already mm -hmm. in 1993 stuff was removed from the case file and never put and back. never yes and nor was it logged who checked it out oh yeah, yeah i remember so not all mm -hmm. Jim and Pete theorized <laughs> from their own experience about how LAPD officers would commit a murder. How, how an LAPD officer would commit a murder. It would be better to do it on a day off, as departmental records showed that Lazarus had been off the day that Sherry Rasmussen had been killed. Oops. Sorry, I hit my mic. Is that loud? Sorry. Yeah. Officers would know better than to use their duty gun, since it would have to be disposed of after the crime and the penalties for losing a duty gun or failing to prevent the theft are were more severe. Instead, it made sense that she would use a gun like her 38 caliber. Last, a working patrol officer would know just would know how to do just enough to make the crime scene look like an interrupted burglary to satisfy an overworked detective. So she definitely knew what she was doing and they are seeing that clearly as I'm confused why the past officers did not. Oh, I'm not. We went over it. We'll talk well, yeah, about but... how shitty they are. So, Nels is back in the case. He's all up in the shit. Um, he told Nuttall that about Lazarus' <laughs> continued, <laughs> continued contact with his daughter, which was... had Nuttall not contact with his daughter? <laughs> no, John had contact with his daughter. I mean, um, Lazarus continued contact with his daughter. Oh, God, I'm thrown off now. Okay, yeah, it, that contact in, that between the daughter and Lazarus had not been put in the files, despite him mentioning it, mentioning it to many detectives frequently during his Mayor and Hooks interviews. 
Realizing that Lazarus was now their prime suspect, the detectives informed their superiors and arranged to discreetly collect a voluntary discarded DNA sample from her, knowing they could do so without having to get a warrant, which was what would have led Lazarus to know that she was under investigation. While off-duty running errands, Lazarus discarded a cup from which she had been drinking, while another police officer went to retrieve it. A sample was taken from it, which matched the DNA from the bite mark on Sherry Rasmussen. Oh, shit. We got you now, bitch. You know what's crazy? Um, we totally forgot to mention it earlier, but um, remember when I said that an ex-lover of uh, John's had gone to visit Sherry at work? Well, you know, I don't think we have to tell you, but that was Stephanie Lazarus. And during that meeting, according to her dad, right? Yes. He recounted this. According to her dad, he said that in that meeting, um, Stephanie straight up told Sherry if I can't have him, no one can. And that was just days before the murder. And, you know, it, it had been reported also. Um, she wrote it down or she told her dad or her, her close friends that she thought Stephanie was stalking her. Like she would see her everywhere, just out of the corner of her eye, down the street, you know, walking by someplace she was eating. She would see Stephanie fucking everywhere. She was getting freaked out about this. But John, she told John about this and John was like, calm down. It'll be okay. She means no harm, uh, you know. And then um, Stephanie was also getting ballsy to the point she had like skis and she would bring them to John for him to wax them for her. And she would come, she would bring the stuff, whatever she wanted to do. And she would put on like these 80s like workout clothes. And she was like, the clothes are like super flattering. And so Sherry was not comfortable with how she was looking, bringing stuff to her fiance at the time. You know, and it, she just wasn't comfortable with it. But John, again, convinced her that we're just a friend. And mm. we saw what happened. So minute shit. Yeah. Rob Bubb, the homicide detective superior at Van Nuys, began letting his Sorry, senior. Rob Bubb. Was it Rob Bubb? Rob Bubb. Also, I like how you said men ain't shit when a woman brutally murdered another woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but men are shit for lying. You're right. But I'm also, I have my own theories on this, and you know okay. that. Yeah, I think I'm in line with yours, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Rob Bubb, the homicide detective superior at Van Nuys, began letting his senior officers all the way up to Chief William Bratton know of the case, along with senior prosecutors from Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. It was transferred to the Robbery Homicide Division, which handled many of the department's high-profile cases, including the Art Theft Bureau, where Lazarus herself worked. Her arrest was planned carefully. On the day of the arrest in June 2009, dozens of officers arose before dawn. After being briefed on a search warrant, they were told that would be executed outside of the city, but with few details beyond that. They went to wait near Lazarus's home in Simi Valley and that city's Metrolink station where Lazarus commuted to the city. What's a Metrolink? A train station. Oh, I thought it was like a police department thing. Okay. No, Met Metrolink's the... Uh over uh, above ground train is line. it the above train okay yeah it's just a station though right <clears throat> yeah it's a it's a name of the line metro oh, okay. okay yeah yeah I got it's, it. like, it's like amtrak it's gotcha. metro gotcha. metro link is the inner city we don't city. have that we don't have that here no nah. have any trains here not nah, get it down there in the sile mm -hmm. so a short time later detectives from the robbery homicide department who had been selected for their lack of personal connection to lazarus called her from the locked lock up at parker center the department's headquarters. Bratton had ordered that location to be used since Lazarus would have to surrender her gun in order to enter it. Limiting the possibility that she might resist violently when she was arrested immediately following the interview was the plan, 
or that she realized she was the prime suspect. So they made her, they wanted to be there. The detectives, Greg Stearns and Dan Jaramillo. Jaramillo? Jaramillo. Yeah, I spelled it wrong so I could say it right. (laughs) (laughs) And I still fucked it up. It's a J-A-R-A-M-I-L-L-O. Yeah. Jeremy Millo. There you go. Nailed it. <laughs> yep. That's perfect. Quesadilla. Anyways, they told her that they had someone in custody who wanted to talk about art theft. After Lazarus had checked in her gun and entered the interrogation room, they explained that this was really about some loose tying up some loose ends in the Sherry Rasmussen case. Since her name had come up in the investigation... They claimed they wanted a private setting because while John was an old boyfriend, Lazarus had long been married to someone else and they did not want her private life to become suspect of office gossip. Stearns and Jaramillo knew they would have to tread lightly or carefully since Lazarus herself was well aware of police interview techniques and her rights to silence and legal counsel, which she could invoke at any time. That's like nerve wracking. Yeah, to try to outplay someone who knows how to play the game. Yeah. Who's been on the job for so long that you're like, ah, shit. And they're probably her subordinates and, at some point. Well, she's also, she's also had 23 years to, like, fine-tune her story. Beef up oh, yeah. her defense. They rambled and digressed from the p- subject at times, sometimes discussing unrelated police b- business, but eventually came back to Sherry Rasmussen. Lazarus claimed to recall little due to the 23 years that had passed but gradually revealed more and more knowledge, including acknowledgments of her visits to the couple's condo and a specific encounter at Sherry Rasmussen's office. Until she had accused her colleagues of considering her a suspect. Yeah, she she was talking until she accused them. and like, wait, am I a suspect? Yeah. Yeah. The detectives mentioned it was possible they had DNA evidence from the crime scene and requested DNA samples from Lazarus. Lazarus declined and thereafter left the room. She was shortly arrested and charged with the murder. Once she had been arrested, the police officer teams in Simi Valley began searching Lazarus' home and car. In her house, they found her journal from the mid-1980s. I can't find mine from last week. What the fuck? This woman had her journals from the 80s? 23 years. I don't have any of my shit from 2006. With numerous mentions of her love for John written and her depression over his engagement to Sherry Rasmussen and no mentions of her gun having been stolen. I think as a cop, I would probably write my journal about that, but, you know, that's just me. Her computer showed that she had searched the internet for John Ritten's name on several occasions during the late 1990s. What computer does she have from the 90s still in 2009? Good question. As the investigating detectives had been, many LAPD officers were stunned at the idea that Lazarus might have murdered someone. Fellow detectives recalled her as vivacious and supportive, although some recalled that her behavior when angry had led some of them to refer refer to her as spazzerous behind her back. Nice. Clever. Kids are assholes. A case she had been developing from her artwork theft with Another case with elder abuse and real estate fraud aspects had to be dropped since it was highly unlikely that they could be prosecuted success- successfully if they let if the lead investigator herself were facing a murder charge. So how fucking shitty is that that these cases are being fucked and dropped over because she decided she could not go psycho 23 years ago? Yes, 
I feel like they could just give them if to they someone know else. These people, yeah, give them to someone else. If they know these people are guilty, they, they still have a case because they still did the illegal thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can understand how the, the whole investigation is fucked because of her actions. I get it. it, it you're kind of, you're, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, so that's just, at that point, they can't make sure that those cases would be justified on either side, actually, because the police could push further than needed just to kind of make, take some heat off of this and then, or they yeah, could well, not do anything. What I was saying is like the rep, her reputation is tarnished. So any, her word is no good anymore. That's what yeah. I was saying. And she was the lead investigator. So I guess they had no choice. Even if they turned them over, all the shit she'd already done would be negated. So anyways, after her arrest, Lazarus was, was allowed to retire early from the LAPD. Isn't that sweet? They let her retire. She was held in Los Angeles Aww. County jail until a bail hearing, which was not for six months later. And Judge Robert J. Perry surprised both sides when he set the amount at $10 million in cash, well above what the defense had suggested and more than twice what the prosecutors had proposed. The case against... Yeah, to make sure she wouldn't go nowheres. Yeah. And I don't get the bail hearing time for six months. Like, I guess she was just in L.A. County for six months. Yeah. Sitting there. It would have counted as time served towards her. Because there's, you have to realize like how many cases there are and stuff. You don't get a bail hearing right away. It's especially with the. But I'm just thinking like she, that had to be six months that she's yeah. in SEG because she can't be in Gen Pop. She's a cop who mm-hmm. killed someone. So she's six months. She's just sitting in a room by herself. That's shitty. I'd rather just go to big jail and beef it out. Are you on her side because she's a woman? No, I'm not on her side at all. I'm saying so like, I think she just said that it I think sucks. She, that's a severe punishment to be alone in a cell for that long. No, I'm saying she Aww. no, she <laughs> deserves that, but she needs to go into the big jail. Don't worry about her ten milli cash and just get her ass done. Get this shit over with. Tax dollars are adding up, buddy. And she's already been fucking twenty three years deep in this shit. I'm over okay, it. Tell the Supreme Court that. We'll we'll change our whole judicial system. Oh, I would if I could. I'd tell the motherfuckers a lot of shit. Anyways, so the case against Lazarus was very strong, he said, and thus she might be a flight risk and and may flee the country or obtain weapons through her husband, who is still an active LAPD detective. Lazarus. Yeah. Lazarus's lawyer, Mark Overlord, said the judge did not understand the case. Well, I mean, Overland. (laughs) Mark the Overlord. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. So so, Mark Overland. <laughs> Sorry. So, said the judge did not understand the case well in contrast to the high figure with the one million set for Robert Blake and Phil Spector. And they were charged with murder. So he's comparing two other high profile cases. I think you guys have done one of those, haven't you? No. Not okay. yet. <laughs> So they were charged with murder. Several months later, her brother claimed that she was not receiving adequate treatment for an unspecified cancer while in custody. And yeah, bless her heart. So that's a lot of mind fucking information to get all at once. I understand this case was incredibly frustrating based off of the facts that we know there were blue cover and blinders used throughout. And thankfully the Rasmussen family has the closure they deserve. And this will hopefully help us end this issue for all future cases. 
Well, I mean, this happened in 2009, and they, they uh, prosecuted in 2012, and nothing's really changed. <clears throat> She's actually in the women's uh, correctional, like, 10 and minutes Corona. from my house. Yeah, I was going to say, don't you live near there? And she was sentenced yeah. to 27 years um, to, life. to life, and she will be, due to time served, she'll be bond eligible in December of 2034. Hmm. Well, like, that wraps up Cash what me we on know. That about the Sherry Rasmussen murder, right? But, but what's been bothering me, and I know Emily too, and I think Will has jumped on it a few times, but what bothers me about this case is how the husband was never looked at for any suspicious reasons. He was never charged or even suspected of any any kind of foul play. But like we've alluded to several times, the, the alarm just wasn't set that day. Like he, it just, and then he got back with her. I don't know, dude. The, the husband's super sus. I, he slept with her on the night of his engagement to give her closure. Bitch doesn't deserve closure. She's not your woman. Go home to your fiance that you just got a BMW for and put a ring on the finger. So get your life together, sir. But also, you acted as if, like, her parents didn't matter. You didn't help support them. You moved on with your life. Good on you, whatever. But then you got back with the bitch after the case died down. And then still, that didn't work out. So what made her not go psycho then? Like she just had chiller jets because, or cooler jets because she was, you know, already one deep in the ground. What the fuck? Yeah, it's just too much information that he just didn't give a shit about. Or like, like again, like, and then we we, we didn't really cover it that much. But the relationship he had with uh, Stephanie Lazarus was one that is it happened and. Before they graduated college, but after they graduated college, it was the first time they had sex. And it said that within a year span, they had sex 25 to 30 times. He would take her to dinners. They would go out and do things together, like company uh, they would parties events and, stuff. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So they were each other's date to these important events in their lives. But John always maintained that he never said she was his girlfriend. She was deeply obsessed and in love with this guy. Clearly, she's willing to kill for him. But John was like, nah, we're, we just... Friends, yeah, friends with benefits. benefits. Yeah. yeah, calm down. This isn't this isn't mutual. You know, I don't know what you're thinking, but it's not that. And it, then it's just... also at the same time, I saw a reference. I didn't. I'd only seen it in one thing, so I didn't really mention it. But like, we're talking about the alarm not being set, and you know, just like their daily, like I guess normal activities that they would do. Well, he he left, and I guess he normally left after her because it was 7.30 when she kissed him goodbye, so he was used to setting the alarm and stuff, so regardless of her being home or not, he would have still set the alarm. So that's really, like, sketch for me that he didn't set the alarm regardless. When I leave the house, I don't care if you're standing by the door, I turn around and lock the door. Like, that's just my routine. Another thing, like, Sherry was, it's a Monday, and she had class. She was supposed to not be there. Was Stephanie just going to show up and murder nothing? Like, how does she know that she would be home by herself this day? Yeah, I think about that. Yeah, how did she know this is the day you need to not even break in, just let yourself into my kitchen and murder my wife? You know what I mean? I, that's what it I... It makes I, it seem like I, it it's... I'm not... He was never officially charged with anything. It's. I'm just saying. I'm not saying he's guilty of this. It's just odd to me. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Don't sue me. I'm just saying. <laughs> Please, we don't yeah, have Ms. anything. We don't have any money anyway. So you John, we're maybe. waiting for 87 cents a day, sir. Please don't sue <laughs> us. Yeah, it's just strange to me that 
was this more negligence from the LAPD, or is he really just an innocent bystander in this whole thing? I think and just didn't care both. enough. No. I think it was both. I think there was some negligence. Well, there was a lot of negligence. There was a lot of ignorance on his part, and then there was just a lot of flat stupidity on everyone's part. Well, all right. So let, now we take it to you guys, the audience. What do you guys think? Is is Stephanie just a psycho person who acted alone? Did she have help from John, the husband? You know, let us know what you think. Hit us up on our socials at Facebook and Instagram at Bloodthirsty Times. Hit us up on uh, Gmail, uh, Pod at gmail.com. Leave us voice messages on anchor.fm. And we will see you next week. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.